Cambodian Global Perspectives. Australia is a friend, a partner, but also a neighbor of ASEAN. Australia-India ties. So the India-Australia relationship, I think, has come a long way since even 2010. ADF energy requirements. There is a clause within the Act that if there were an emergency or a crisis, the Defence Force can actually request access to all of the energy available in Australia. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. To begin this week's episode, Brendan Nicholson speaks to Dr. Cal Kim Horn, Cambodia's Minister Delegate attached to the Prime Minister for Foreign Affairs and ASEAN. They discuss ASEAN's stance on the conflict in Ukraine, Australia's relationship with Cambodia, and the expansion of the Reem naval base. Dr. Cow, your father was a school teacher, and your family fled Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge reign of terror, when teachers were among those marked for execution. You're a teenager at the time, and many people would be broken by that experience. But you went on to do extremely well at your studies in the United States and elsewhere. You founded and became president of the University of Cambodia, and you're a prolific author of a wide range of books. You're now a minister in your country's government, and you'll soon go on to the key position in a major regional organisation as ASEAN's Secretary General. What did all of that experience teach you about life, about international relations, and how will you bring that to your current and future roles? Thank you very much uh, for this important question. Uh, I, in fact, I left Cambodia only after the Khmer regime was ousted. And then uh, I had the opportunity to leave Cambodia. Well, of course, uh, my lifetime experience in Cambodia, uh, living through uh, the drop of the bombs, uh, the genocide, the conflicts, and the border fighting, uh, they all have taught me to be kind to other people. It's very important, and uh, particularly those who are less unfortunate. Uh, I think we have to uh, have a good heart. Uh, people are not as fortunate as one can be, so I think to be kind is very important. Of course, uh, in terms of international relations, I think every one of us should use our lifetime to build global peace and to work for the development in our own society, in the region, and the global community. I think we should not be too selfish. As ASEAN Secretary General, you'll have a key role in terms of shaping the organization's policies and strategies. This is happening at a time of tense global events, such as war in Ukraine, which will have long-term repercussions. China appears to be increasing its support for Russia. How do you believe the conflict will impact the members of ASEAN and the Indo-Pacific more broadly? Well, the impact has already been made uh, on ASEAN collectively, but also on each member state, because the Russian invasion of Ukraine has already disrupted the global confidence and the trust that we have in the UN. We still have the trust there because the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, all of us support them because we believe that they have the privilege but also the responsibility 
for global peace. Now with one of the P5 invaded in the country, what does it tell us? And that's why Cambodia and the leadership of Prime Minister co-sponsor with other member states and voted in favor of Ukraine because we believe that international law, the UN Charter, would have to be upheld. So for us in ASEAN, the impact we see is coming already uh, through, the ri- uh, through the rising prices of energy, also food prices, but inflation that has come about, that have come about because of the invasion, but also the sanctions. Sanctions will hurt all of us too, although we understand that sanctions have intended goal, but the ramifications are global. Clearly, Australia would like to be seen as a reliable partner for Cambodia and for ASEAN more generally. What areas of cooperation do you believe would be most appropriate and what can Australia do to assist both Cambodia and ASEAN? Australia is a friend, a partner, but also a neighbour of ASEAN. It is the oldest member of the oldest dialogue partner of ASEAN. And we have already elevated our partnership to become the first comprehensive strategic partnership between uh, us in Australia. So that speaks volume, meaning that there's a lot of trust between ASEAN and Australia to be able to agree to elevate to that level, meaning that we now can work on all sectors at all levels. So I think we believe that we should work across sector, meaning, of course, government to government, business to business, people to people, young people to young people, think tanks to think tank, also parliament to parliament. I think this is all for the good of our region. And since ASEAN is a force for good, Australia can support the important role of ASEAN, particularly ASEAN centrality, support ASEAN community building process, the ASEAN integration, because a stronger, a more integrated ASEAN is also of great benefits to Australia as well. We have a bigger market for you also. For Cambodia, this year is our championship. So we were closely not only with and among ASEAN member states, but also with our dollar partners like Australia. And Australia has been a proactive player in our region, including in our sub-regional framework like the Mekong. I think Australia has been doing a, a terrific job, a wonderful job. So we hope that one area that Australia can continue to push is providing human resource development, capacity building for our young people. The future will lie in the young people. And Cambodia is a young society as defined by demography. We have a lot of young people. So the training and education empower young people and our young people become the asset rather than liability of the society on the one hand but on the other hand also you assist us during this time because as the ASEAN chair we need all the support that we can have from all our partners and can Australia 
improved education systems in Cambodia, either either by educating Cam- young Cambodians in Australia or by providing institutions inside Cambodia? I think it should be both. Uh, both tracks should be pursued. I think Australia has been doing already a wonderful job providing support directly with our ministry education, youth in sport, and also providing scholarship for our young people. And and I think this is uh, will go a long way in terms of the long-term investment in the relationship of our two countries. Look, this month, Cambodian and Chinese officials launched a project to expand the Reem naval base, which China has funded. United States officials have said that part of the base will be reserved for the use by China's military. This could clearly help China consolidate control over the South China Sea, a vital maritime thoroughfare. And is it wise for Cambodia to expand the reach of the PLA Navy in this way? I don't think this is a, a fact. Uh, I think it's important for media to play its critical role in uh, disseminating correct information. Yes, there is uh, an inauguration of a project. Cambodia is a country that had been devastated by wars and conflicts. And we have to rebuild our infrastructure from roads to bridges, ports. But this particular project is only to help Cambodia repair its own ships, small ships. In the past, we have to spend money and time to send them to be repaired in Thailand or in Vietnam. It's time for us to do our own things. I think this small project supported by uh, China does not mean we allow the Chinese to have its own military base or foreign military base to be based in Cambodia. It is entirely against our constitution, and we would not allow such thing to, to happen. My Prime Minister already said uh, repeatedly, uh, many times already, that we do not have foreign base in Cambodia. Or we deploy our troops overseas at all. This is against our constitution. So I can say that uh, this is not true. And uh, we, we, uh, we just state the facts that uh, uh, what is happening now, it's just, uh, there's a lot of media reporting. And I believe that uh, hopefully that uh, this has to be uh, stopped because uh, we don't want to invent reality, which is not there. In terms of the capability of this particular base, would it take large ships? Yes, uh, because the water is very shallow. Uh, so uh, it does not allow any large or big ships to come into the port. Yeah. We have a deep sea port, which is commercial. It, uh, it being uh, financed and supported technically and also through the management. Uh, by the Japanese government. So uh, there is another port that we talk about, but this particular Rim naval base is a very shallow water. Right. So it does not allow the possibility at all. Obviously a difficult issue for ASEAN at the moment is Myanmar. Now the Myanmar Defence Minister, I think, is in Cambodia at the moment. Does this indicate some sort of acceptance of the, the regime in, in Myanmar? No, not at all. I think we focus on uh, the political uh, representative uh, representation, meaning that in ASEAN, we do not 
invite a political representative of Myanmar to import as in meetings if the implementation of five-point consensus has not made substantive progress. Now, when we talk about political level, we talk about as in summit or uh, related summits, or we talk about the meeting of ASEAN foreign minister rather than other sectoral bodies. Defense uh, minister meeting, ASEAN defense minister meeting is a sectoral body. So uh, we don't regard this as uh, like the foreign minister meeting. Yeah. Right, and the last question, um, what is the view of Cambodia and of ASEAN of AUKUS and the Quad? I think our view is that we now we're learning. We're trying to understand as much as possible what this uh, new mechanism is all about. Because ASEAN, we have many mechanisms, but we have these two mechanisms been set up. And I think Australia has been very good in engaging through diplomacy, meaning inform ASEAN member states of what this uh, entity is going to do, what's going to serve. So I think for us is that as long they do not become a threat to ASEAN, uh, I think that's good because Australia and other court members or August, they are the ASEAN dollar partners and they have pledged their support for ASEAN centrality. So it's very important. That's why we want all court and uh, August member states to support the ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific, which of course ASEAN is at the centre of. Dr. Kell, thanks very much. Thank you very much. This week, Australia's Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister, Richard Miles, was in India to meet his counterpart. Carly Winkler and Barney Graywell reflect on how the India-Australia relationship has evolved and highlight the importance of focusing the relationship in on defence and security. Hi Barney, so you're Aspie's India foreign policy expert and long-time watcher of the India-Australia relationship. We spent a lot of time here talking about AUKUS and about the you know Western allies, but tell us about what's going on with the India relationship at the moment. Great question, Carly. So the India-Australia relationship, I think, has come a long way since even 2010. Yeah. 2008-2020 was when Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was accused of abandoning the Quad, Quad 1.0, as it's called, because mm-hmm. now we're in Quad 2.0. There were tensions about India's nuclear program and that resulted in a sort of dampening of the relationship. Mm. Fast forward 10 years, we have a completely different region, completely different security concerns where we find convergence. And that's where in 2020, you saw India and Australia sign their comprehensive strategic partnership. And I think in really in the last two years, we've seen how far this relationship has come. We have a defense logistics agreement. We have commitments to open a center of excellence of critical technology in India. We have an interim trade deal, which is the big deal mm-hmm. for a country like India, which doesn't do trade deals, mm-hmm. free trade deals. So that's where the relationship is, is at now, but it still has things to do. In Australia needs partners like India. Of course, we have our traditional allies, the United States, UK, but we need partners like India, partners who are present in the region, have stakes in the region, but also want to uphold the rules-based order. And that's where 
the relationship is at right now. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Defence Minister Richard Miles is over visiting at the moment, right? Yes. So Defence Minister and our Deputy Prime Minister. So I think he's really gone there with a mandate to show that the new Labour government is invested in the relationship with India and wants to take it forward. Yeah, that's excellent news. So you mentioned that, you know, the world has changed and India, Australia, we really share some, you know, geopolitical alignment. We're both here in the region. And, of course, it's, it's tempting to sit back and say, well, it's all about China, isn't it? Or is it not all about China? Where do we, where do we land on that? I think, again, and Defence Minister Miles mentioned this in his statements in India, the relationship is not all about China. It's not driven by China. Um, I would tend to both agree and disagree with parts of that statement. Mm-hmm. The first point is, yes, we can't look at our relationship with India through the lens of that it, it is all about China. We have to grow our economic relationship. There's benefit to you know, both of our prosperity. That's it. We have to think about the Indian diaspora. Here in Australia, we have to grow our cultural links. We have to think about technology. India is a great tech hub and how we can tap into that. But at the same time, I think we need to be honest about ourselves Um, and our interests in the region. We have to be honest about that our defense security partnership with India wants to create stability in the region and is born out of shared security concern about China's actions in the region. So I think, yes, we have to be honest and we have to have the hard conversations with India. We have to come to a shared understanding of, and it's urgent, the security threats we're going to face in the next 10 years. We are out of the court partners, I would say. We are both the resident powers in the Indian Ocean. And for Australia, of course, the Pacific Ocean is a priority. Mm -hmm. So we need to think about what's going to happen in the next 10 years. And we need to think about how we're going to address those challenges together. I think that's super sensible. I mean, the reality is is that both our countries have really complex relationships with China that don't, uh, you know, and aren't easily summed up by, uh, you know, one defence program. You know, we have trade, we have economic relationships. And so, in fact, India at the moment um, is particularly... So India at the moment is participating in the BRICS summit with both China and Russia. How does that fit? And, you know, what's India's motivation in trying to work with both the Quad and the Western allies, but also participate in summits um, where, you know, we have a lot of disagreements right now? Again, I think we have to look at it and it's confusing from an Australian perspective or an American perspective. We're used to looking at our partnerships through an alliance framework. Mm. And that means we're in it together. We condemn actions together. We're concerned about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and we're together, you know, our statements echo each other and we take collective action. India comes from a different perspective. India has actually, for majority of its independent history, not had a great relationship uh, with the West. Um, Russia or Previously, the Soviet Union was its traditional partner. Mm-hmm. I don't think that India's participation in the BRICS summit means that India is playing a double game mm-hmm. uh, between the Quad, between Australia and United States and Japan and Russia and China. We have to understand India's motivations. India is part of Asia. It has interests in Central Asia. 
It has interests in monitoring what's happening between Russia and China. It shares the border with China, where people forget that thousands of troops are still facing off each other. Mm-hmm. And it ultimately wants a multipolar world. Mm-hmm. And this has been stated by the Indian foreign minister many times. So we have to look at it from that context. I think we have to support India and its uh, journey towards moving away from Russian defense uh, imports. But at the same time, we can't tell India that you can't be partners mm-hmm. in the same way we don't want us, India to tell us that you can't be partners with another country. Mm-hmm. So we have to respect each other's history and tradition, mm-hmm. but also we have to look forward. Um, and that's where the Indian-Australia partnership plays a great role in looking forward. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, we talk about partnerships and, and what we could do together between India and Australia. What's on the list for what we could collaborate on? Look, right now it spans really multiple areas critical tech, critical minerals, trade, culture, and also mining. Mm. So I really, I could go on and on and on mm-hmm. um, of what the engagement should and look what it looks like. But what I really think we could collaborate on is the area of critical technology. And that's why I had a question for you, Kali, mm. is that actually in Defense Minister Ma's statements in India, he mentioned AUKUS. And then he also mentioned that the priority areas of collaboration in AUKUS, which are AI, quantum, undersea capabilities, is something that Australia and India should also look to collaborate on. Mm. So I wanted to ask you, people think t- tend to think of AUKUS as something just between a trilateral technology and obviously nuclear submarine partnership. Mm. But how do other partners fit into it? Yeah, that's an excellent question and, and one we do get asked a lot. I mean, AUKUS was was not a new thing. AUKUS builds on better part of a century existing collaboration that has happened between, you know, Australia, the US and the UK. And when we're trying to um, address these really critical technology challenges, which are global challenges and challenges faced by pretty much all of the countries that, that we want to work with, there's lots of partnerships that would have that as a key focus. It's great to start with something where you already have those decades of trusted relationships built and you can build off something that is already there. Uh, and and the point of AUKUS was not to be exclusive and to rule everyone else out. It was to start in a space where we're comfortable and then try and bring other people in and find those areas, those projects, those you know specific projects we could work on and pull some threads and actually try some things and, and do that more broadly than just the AUKUS relationship. So when we talk about AUKUS, it concerns people that it was intended to be exclusive and it, and it was absolutely not. It was a recognition of an existing relationship and being able to use that and use what works in that space and then extend it beyond the defence relationship and beyond those partners. So I think it actually provides a really good foundation for our collaboration with India Um, and, of course, with Japan in quite a relationship and, of course, as the unpartners as we, you know, start to engage more broadly with other countries that face similar challenges to ourselves. And, of course, you know, with India now we've got some really good specific initiatives, right? We yep. have the tech centres that are going to work together on, is it AI? Um, yeah, so the critical, the Centre for Critical Technology, which is going to open up in India's Tech Hub, Bengaluru. Yeah. I actually think that's a great way, like you said, AUKUS is the starting point mm-hmm. between three partners who already share uh, great trust. But the Centre of Excellence in Bengaluru for Critical Technology could be a potential way that 
using our partnership with AUKUS, the AUKUS partnership, using our relationship with India is to, you know, accelerate our cooperation in critical technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking forward to those types of initiatives in the future. I think that sounds awesome. Barney, thank you so much. It's a really interesting state of play with India at the moment. And it's great to have you come and talk about it. Thank you. Energy security is currently front and centre in Australia, with issues around supply and costs. Dr Robert Glasser speaks to Dr Yuli Yildrum about the Australian Defence Force's energy supplies and the need to grow the alternative fuel sector in Australia to future-proof the ADF. So Yuli, thank you for joining me today on our ASPE podcast to discuss your special report on the Australian Defence Force and its future energy requirements. Thank you for having me here. Um, I, I've been looking forward to uh, doing one of these. I haven't done one of these before, so this is exciting. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, I hope we can make it exciting for our <laughs> listeners. I'm sure we will because it's a really interesting topic. And I know it's had a lot of uh, response already after it was posted earlier today. Can you tell us why you decided to work on this report? Is this something you looked at when you were, I mean, in your time in the military? Or, or is it an idea that occurred to you recently to write this report? That's an excellent question. Look, I've been looking at the this uh, energy security from an ADF perspective for quite some years. Part of my previous postings within the defense uh, defense force or in the air force, and one thing that I've realised is part of our all our war gaming, at least from my my perspective, uh, was that the defense force tends to assume away the energy security aspect of it, it because there is a clause within the within the act that if there were a, an emergency or a crisis. At some point, def- the Defence Force can actually request access to all of the energy available in Australia. Mm. That's not a, a a very nice way of looking at it. So because of that, there is a reliance, in my opinion, that um, we just assume a way of saying that we will have this fuel. But if the purpose of the Defence Force is to prevent crises, then we need to have some sort of a an energy security that where we can operate. Because one of the things that I mentioned in the report that I've been tackling for quite some years is that the moment we signal to the world that we will start taking fuel from the national support base. What do you mean when you say the national support base? The, the entire of the nation. Yep. We're already in the middle of a crisis. So there's no crisis prevention here. We're, we, are, we would be living through a crisis and signaling to the rest of the world that we're having issues with our energy supply and that the defense force is in some sort of a uh, an issue that they're trying to resolve, and that's 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 pulling the big levers, uh, which is quite frightening from my perspective. Yep. So it's I guess that's signaling even to a potential opponent. That's correct. Already in strife, uh, even before we're able to perhaps respond in the way we need to respond. So this report is really interesting. I guess at the starting point, it describes a bit about our current reliance on traditional fuels. Can you tell us a bit about that and what worries you about that, at least looking to the future? That's an excellent question. So uh, I mentioned the terms national support base. From an Australian perspective and also globally, there, there are major shifts in the, the, the energy requirements that we're, we're experiencing. So I, I mentioned electrification and the use of alternative fuels, uh, liquid fuels and so forth uh, across the globe, which have great implications on, on, on the Defence Force. The challenge is that the the equipment that the Defence Force or militaries across the globe are operating are long-life items that take a long time to design, to get into service, 
uh, and then operate for a long time. So, what's an example of uh, an example yeah. being the the our aircraft, so our fighter aircraft, you know, the F thirty five fighter aircraft, uh, will be operating that well into the twenty thirties. And similarly, some of the equipment that are in the design phase, such as the Hunter class frigate that I mentioned, um, you know, that'll come into service quite some years in the future, and we'll be operating that for at least twenty years. Mm. Those pieces of kit use fossil fuels or liquid fuels, I should say. So whilst the entire nation is transitioning to electrification of their equipment, as well as using sustainable fuels, the military will still be reliant on fossil fuels. I guess that's worrying. I mean, if the nation is still relying on fossil fuels into the future, it may mean extra costs, just uh, financial costs. I guess for the military, it's a different order of seriousness because if that reliance somehow undermines the resilience of the forces that need to respond in a crisis, I guess that's an issue. That, that's correct. And the challenge is if the entire nation is using it, then there is a degree of abundance because it's available. Because the defense force relies on the, on the energy or fuel that's available in the country to, be, to draw upon to be able to conduct its business. Oh, okay. Maybe some people listening might assume that the military has its own source of fuels that it relies on but and this is a key point about the vulnerability i guess if it is that it actually as you've said relies on what exists in australia in the civilian non-military sector that's right so to put it into perspective so um, a very simple example is our jet fuel the military grade jet fuels are commercial fuels which contain military additives so as the fuel is produced through the refinery process and either gets transported during or just prior to transportation or, or just after uh, transportation, the fuel is additized with things like uh, lubricity improvers, the static dissipating additive and so forth to deal with the equipment that the, the ADF uses. But it's a commercial grade fuel. So the same fuel, so our aircraft can fly to, can fly to say, a, a, a commercial airport and take the fuel uh, and operate and, you know, come back to a military base and do the same thing whether it contains additives or not. That, that's depending on the mm. uh, context. So yeah, the, the ADF is heavily reliant on what's available here. So what I was going to get from that is if the entire nation is rely, still relying on fossil fuels, there is that abundance available. But if the entire nation has completely given up on, on those fuels, then what happens is then the ADF has to have its own supply chain that it needs to manage itself, by itself. So it loses its... Uh, not only it loses its focus, but also loses its buying power. Then other than the war fighting that everybody speaks about, then now it's become a, a logistics supply company, if you want to put it, uh, for lack of a better word. And I guess one of the trends we're seeing with climate change is the rapid acceleration of the transit and the, the plummeting cost of renewable energy is this rapid transformation globally from fossil fuel-based technologies to renewables. So... What are the implications of that? Let's assume, other than the one you mentioned, let's assume uh, Australia makes this transition to renewables. So the choice for the military, keeping in mind that there are 30-year systems, weapons platforms out there, is to either hang on to fossil fuels somehow by making it totally an internally defense-sourced and capacity, or I guess to transition to new fuels. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The options are available and have been available for that transition for quite some years now. So going back again to the jet fuels aspects of it. So alternative fuels have been around um, since, the, since World War II and they've been popularized since 1999. I mean, um, the commercial 
enterprise, aviation enterprise, have been using alternative fuels since 1999. The militaries across the world, some have jumped on sooner than others, but they've generally been relatively reluctant because of this abundance of fossil fuels. Um, uh, in my opinion, one of the most proactive um, have been um, the U.S. military and specifically the U.S. Navy that that, that jumped on board um, from 2010 or 10 onwards uh, to get you know initiatives such as the Great Green Fleet and so forth, where they were trying to demonstrate that half of their fleet could operate on um, alternatively generated um, fuels and so forth. Have they demonstrated that? By and way? they have. So, uh, as far as I'm aware, the demonstration of the Great Green Fleet occurred in 2014. Um, I can't remember the exact figures, but if I'm not mistaken, more than 50% of the U.S. Navy's uh, energy is through alternative sources. And I think uh, nuclear-powered equipment represent 25% of some of that. So we don't have a lot of time to go through all of the, the risks that this transition to renewable energy is addressing or will address. Uh, But just to highlight them for our listeners, one is the energy security issue, this reliability of the supply chain to the military. The second was the one you just mentioned, basically, if our allies are making this transition and we want to be, we need to be engaging with them, with allies' militaries, with our military, then that question of interoperability is an issue. Can you say a little about that? How would, what are the challenges if we don't make the transition and the allies we rely on to some extent for our security have made that transition. Yeah, so it's interesting. They, the, the, in the case of the U.S. military, they can quite comfortably come to Australia and you know, use um, available fuel, specifically fossil fuels. If we haven't made that transition, we can't do that if we were to go and try to exercise with um, the U.S. military. And I will not name countries, but there was an incident where – um, exercise red flag was occurring in in the U.S. where uh, a host of nations go to the U.S. to conduct exercises, um, and the U.S. Air Force was quite open very early on saying the fuel we'll be providing is a specific alternative fuel because that's what we've transitioned to. Beware that this is what's going to be available, and a very uh, important partner ignored that, saying we will turn up and then you will give us what 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 we're expecting. What happened was they did turn up at that incident and the U.S. military said, well, we have none of that. So that very important partner had to fly home with all their aircraft and equipment and completely missed out on the opportunity to exercise. So these are the challenges that we'd be facing if we weren't actually doing the uh, rigorous work behind transitioning and being unable to um, exercise with our major partners. So Uli, how, maybe just maybe one final question what are the key steps to making this transition? What's required? Uh, maybe if you just touch on the first, the one, two, or three most critical steps. Sure. Um, so the, the first one that I mentioned was that to increase our storage capacity and refining capacity in Australia as part of a national energy security strategy. Uh, but the one that I, I find really important that I would stress strongly is having partnerships and cooperation with allies, partners, and importantly, commercial entities um, that are facing similar challenges to us. Because in my opinion, there is not a single entity that has a monopoly across the entire energy enterprise. So collaboration and cooperation with allies, partners and commercial enterprises uh, will solve this problem together. So a big challenge to engage 
all of those players, uh, including in, in, across Australian society, to not just support the transition nationally, but the transition in the military as well to support these alternative fuels. I would just want to recommend to our viewers that we've just skimmed the surface of this really useful report that Yuli has produced. So I'd really encourage you to have a look at the full list of recommendations and a lot of the further detail about energy security implications, the implications with respect to low emissions, because all of Australia will be trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, the interoperability issues we discussed, but also another issue we haven't discussed, which was the opportunity and the need for maintaining uh, stable fuel costs to support the military's operations as well. But really, it's a great report. Thank you very much for spending some time with us today to discuss it. Thank you for your time. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Brendan Nicholson, Executive Editor of The Strategist, Dr. Cal Kim Horn, Cambodia's Minister Delegate attached to the Prime Minister for Foreign Affairs and ASEAN, Carly Winkler, Deputy Director of ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Barney Graywell, researcher with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre. Dr. Robert Glasser, head of ASPE's Climate and Security Policy Centre, and Dr. Yuli Yildrum, Air and Space Power Centre's Air Force Visiting Fellow. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.